Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I am uh, with Mark Jackson today, author of Greed, Survival, and Redemption, How Dying in Prison Saved My Life. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say other than that title. Uh, Mark, how are you doing today? Mike, I'm great, and I really appreciate you having me on your show. I appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. Of course. Um, you bet. Good deal. So, you know, prior to going to prison, um, obviously you were spent some time, I think you said five years. Close um, to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, you were living a pretty high life, I understand. Um, I was. And, yeah. What were you doing before before? Well, I was a, I was a, yeah uh, I was a stock market trader, but I traded stocks for thirty years, and I did very very well. I, I was self taught. By the time I was thirty five, I was already a millionaire, and I was very good at it. And the money it actually came too easy to me, and. I started becoming very greedy. I started equating my net worth with my self-worth. And every time I would make a good trade and make maybe $100,000 or more, I'd feel good for five or 10 minutes, but then that feeling would go away and I need to have the next deal come through, almost like a drug addict probably. And um, uh, it got to the point when I thought, well, you know, I'm making a lot of money, but I could make even more money if I got other people to invest with me, which I didn't need to do. And I raised over $50 million from outside investors, promising them high rates of return, guaranteeing those rates of return. And, and anybody that was sensible would know, well, there's no such thing as a guarantee. And I promised 12% interest in a market where maybe you could only get 5% on your money. This was back in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. But people clamored for me. And all went well until the financial crisis hit. And I couldn't make any money. And I was too proud or I don't want to say stupid. That's a bad word but I wouldn't allow myself to come clean to my investors. And I thought, well, I'll just work through this because this financial crisis won't last very long. And I'll say and do what I have to do to keep this thing going. Well, I, in essence, turned my business into a Ponzi scheme because when I stopped making money, I still owed money to people and I'd be paying it out and it would come from a big pool of cash. And I wasn't sure if it was my money or, or whoever's money it was. And uh, within a year and a half, I basically ran out of money, had to shut my business down. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. But I have to tell you that I lived a pretty high life when I was doing well. I, I traveled around the world. Uh, I had several cars, several gym memberships, was a member of two golf country clubs. It was all about status to me back then. It wasn't about anything, but how do I look to other people and money is power and the real important things in life weren't important to me. Like I had my wife and my kids, but I would much rather make money 
and even do it the wrong way than worry about the impact it would have on my family. That was back then. That's not now. Right. So let's let's back up a little bit. You know, yeah. what led up. Let's led up to that. To that kind of you know, let's just say greed, so to speak. Um, you know, the who, what, when of Mark. What you know, what was growing up for you like, and you know, where did you grow up? What, are you a Colorado native, or, or you know, kind of give us a little bit of a background of of, of what what led up to that moment of of you know the greed, the superstar power, so to speak, sure. you know, having, having a nice car and, and the nice, you know, things. And, and, and as you say, lo- look at me, I, I'm, I'm dressed nice. I've got the nice cars, the big house, but um, it sounds like there might've been some emptiness in there, but um, so kind of, kind of lead up to what built, built up to, to, to that mark. And then we'll get into the mark of today. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, I grew up in Denver. I'm a native. I grew up in Hilltop, which I was born in 1954. So in the late 50s, early 60s, that was the neighborhood to live in 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 Denver. A lot of very wealthy people. And my dad, who I really looked up to, was a product of Depression-era parents. And he came from nothing. He was also from Denver, my father, and he turned himself into a very successful businessman from nothing. And he always said to me, he said he will never live the life that he lived growing up, which was living hand to mouth. And what his attitude was the more money, it was kind of like I told you earlier, Buck, he, the more money he had, the better he felt about himself. And I'll never forget, we used to take walks in our neighborhood. We knew everybody, and we'd stop and we'd talk to people. And I might have been 11, 12 years old at the time. And we'd have a nice conversation with this gentleman. And then when he walked away and my dad and I walked in another direction, my dad would say, you know, son, that guy's a nice guy, but he's a nothing guy. And I said, Dad, what do you mean a nothing guy? He said, he'll never amount to anything because he barely makes a living. And I said, dad, he seems like a really good guy. And my dad said, son, you'll learn as you grow up and get into the business world, if that's what you do, that if you don't have a lot of money, you really aren't amounting to much. And I, to this day, as we sit here today, Buck, I don't blame my dad for anything, but I will say the seeds of my greed got planted during those conversations. And as I got into the market and I started making money, I did start feeling better about myself. And I thought, well, maybe my father has a point. But I look at it now and that's not the right way to live life. And I, I had prison, prison, I had to go to prison to learn it. Yeah, well. Um, as we know, they, they sometimes call prison going to school in one way or another. You're definitely learning something in there. Um, well, yeah, this guy told me this saying once. He said, prison is a university for a wise man and a playground for the fool. So if right. I wanted to use prison and get into trouble all the time, I'd probably still be there. But I used it as a tool to improve my life, improve myself, improve my relationship with how I felt about other people and 
prison taught me all that. And I think that's why I only served a third of my sentence because I did, I did very well for myself and other people when I was in prison. Right. Well, I mean, you know, as, as we've shared before in some other conversations, um, it, it's, it is a place that you can give back, um, quite a bit and learn a lot. I mean, I used the time as, as I've, I've shared with you to kind of do the deep dive into self, as they say, and, and learn what was, you know, making me click and, and why I responded the way I responded to my incident and, you know, was able to put some of those demons to bed and, and focus on being a better person on, on being a right. good person and right. And trying to help others. And I understand you kind of did the same thing with, helping teach um, some math classes or GED classes in prison. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? yeah. I, uh, once I, uh, well, I'll tell you uh, a, a story and that's how the title of my book came to be. I started off at Buena Vista, which was really not a prison for me, a 55 year old white man going to prison for the first time. And as you know, Buck, Buena Vista, the Thunderdome, right. uh, I immediately got classified as a child molester because of my looks. Once people found out what I was in for, which was uh, one kind of racketeering under the Colorado Organized Crime Act, people started to like me because they thought I could uh, help them in ways, whether they could wanted to extort me or whether I could teach them how to, to con people or whatever. But I got some instant credibility once people knew what I was in prison for. But I got sick at Buena Vista. And I ultimately had to be rushed to a hospital and I wound up contracting a disease called necrotizing fasciitis, which is a flesh eating disease, which is rare, but most people that get it either die or lose the limb that is affected. And uh, I literally had to be, I literally died on the operating table in Salida, which is outside of beauty. Uh, they were doing exploratory surgery on my leg, and I went into septic shock. They had to call a flight for life, and I had to be resuscitated. They flew me to Denver at St. Anthony's Hospital. It took me nine months to recover, but I used that moment to say, hey, somebody, whether it be God or some other force, gave me a second chance at life, and I can't mess it up. I got a second chance. And so all of a sudden, all the blame and the bitterness went away. And I thought, I have an opportunity to reinvent myself. And when I ultimately recovered and I went to Sterling, uh, another tough prison, I became a tutor and I helped over 100 inmates get their GED in the three and a half years I was at Sterling. And I have to say that that experience, Buck, gave me more satisfaction than any amount of money I ever made. And so those were the seeds that were planted that made me realize that life is about giving back. And when you give, you get so much in return. And before, for me, it was all take, take, take. Yeah, I mean, incredible story. I know um, I, I can't even imagine, you know, what that's like. I mean, you know, with my time in prison, that's hard enough. And then you know, contracting a disease like that, um, you know, talk, I mean, kind of share a little bit about that because it is a super rare disease. And like, how does how that, how do you get that in prison? I mean, like immersive and things like that. Are, I mean, prisons are a, a breeding source for, you know, diseases and, you know, bacteria and things like that. As we know, you got so many 
men or women packed on top of each other living in, in a, a human right. warehouse basically and, and packed in like sardines one person yep. gets sick it, it, it goes around pretty quickly but what you contracted is really rare i mean how how did how did that happen i mean what was that like well, I know you, you shared the, shared the story with me that you were walking and you're like my ankle and then you know thought it wasn't get better but it just was this kind of crazy thing so right. walk us through well, that a little bit okay well when i first got to buena vista i knew nothing i was scared to death inmates were again making i won't say making fun of me but they were probably plotting to you know you were you were being classified I was classified as a chomo. And, you know, as yep. you know, that's the worst thing you could be classified as. Yep. And so even though people knew that I was a financial guy, I think some people still thought, well, he might be a financial guy, but he's still a chomo, too. Right. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to act. So it took me about a month to learn that I needed to wear shower shoes in the shower for the first month. I was showering in my bare feet Ooh, and I, and obviously now we know that that's, I, I know now that was the wrong thing to do. Nobody would loan me anything. I, I mean, I had to learn for myself. Well, the good, the good and bad news, the good news is even though I took showers for a month at Buny before getting sick, I only showered every three or four days. That's all they let you do. But one of the times I must have had a cut on my foot, a cut on uh, my left um, heel area and some strep infection got sucked into that area and it turned into this flesh eating disease. And the way I got it, I started feeling really nauseated and I thought, well, it's because I'm really stressed and I, I can't eat this food. and. I didn't know if my family would still be supporting me or anything. There were so many unknowns. I didn't know. I had a 15-year sentence. I didn't know if I'd ever get out of prison. So I attributed it to that. But then I started collapsing. And whatever food I ate, I couldn't keep it down. And my ankle started hurting, my left ankle. And I thought, well, in some of the walks in the yard, because I didn't even have tennis shoes yet. I had nothing. So I'm wearing those boots they give you, and I'm walking, and I'm thinking, well, I must have sprained my ankle. But it got so bad that I could barely walk. And, and the, the day that I got sick, uh, I had to work in the kitchen. And from my unit to the kitchen would have taken me maybe a minute to walk to. It took me 30 minutes to hobble in there, and I was sweating. I had this thirst I couldn't quench. And I pleaded with the cops to please take me to the doctor. And at first they thought I was just trying to get out of work and they threatened to send me to the hole. Well, finally right. I collapsed in front of them. And then they took me to the hospital and that's how I ultimately um, got into surgery and um, died on the operating table. Had they waited an extra hour or two to get me to the doctor, I probably would have died. Incredible. Yeah. And it's like while you're in too, going to the doctor is not, um, you know, a pleasant experience and it takes time. You've got to ride a kite and, you know, all these kind of things. It's not like you can just be like, Hey, I feel sick. As you just said, they'll, they'll, they'll be like, no, you don't, or you're not going or whatever. You got to go through all these channels and it's, 
you know, basically you have to collapse or something terrible has to happen. To, to get and that's what I of, did. That's yeah, right. So, if I didn't collapse, I, I, I don't think I would have lasted the day, Buck. I think I right. would have been dead that day. Yeah. So I, it's by the grace of God or by somehow it got to where I was saved. And not only was I physically saved, but emotionally I was saved. And it, like I say, that moment when I came to, I said, I've got a second chance and I am going to make the most of it. And I'm not right. going to leave my wife and kids with a memory of a husband and father that was a liar and a thief. And I was going to turn my life around. And that gave me the impetus. And to this day, I'm still working on that. You know, I've been out of prison since 2015, went to a halfway house for a year. Uh, but I'm still working on it. I think we all are a work in progress every day. As yeah. long as we're trending in the right direction. So true. I mean, you know, um, the prison experience for me, it was, you know, nothing dramatic as, as that. Um, you know, I, and fortunately, I didn't get that kind of label put on me either when I went in. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I kind of remember rolling up to Arkansas Valley and, and you know, being in the bus shackled and, and looking at the Constantine wire, rows of Constantine wire and this like the and getting marched through the middle of the yard, you know, and it's just like, God, how do I get here? You know, and this, you yeah. know, took the time to really think about, you know, decisions and choices. And as you're saying today, the same thing, I really think about the choices and decisions on, you know, making myself better and, and being a better person and, and trying to give back and help others. Um, through some of the work I'm doing with Art for Redemption and, you know, the podcast here on sharing stories such as yourself. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a crazy ride, though, when you're, when, you, when you're on top of the world. As you said, you know, I was living a pretty good life, too. was an entrepreneur, had started a company and sold it, started a nonprofit dealing with veterans reintegration and, um, you know, found myself in this situation and, and you know, the PTSD or whatever kicked in and I reacted in a, in a way that, that I sh should not have. And I assaulted an in individual as people know. And, um, you know, it, it gave me, a, took a couple years of my life. Um, again, and, and similar to you, I had a seven year sentence and ended up, um, you know, doing less than two and, um, about six months in a, in a halfway house. So about, yep. well, actually nine. Um, and I guess I'm coming up on my year anniversary of the halfway house here in just a few days. So it's a um, great anniversary a, to have. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> it, it's been, it's been, been looking in the rearview mirror ever since, right? And, and yes, just hoping, sir. It, hoping it gets further and further away is, is all it I will. Say. Yeah. It will. Yeah. So let's go back to your book a little bit. You know, um, you wrote this book while in prison, my understanding. Um, I did. Greed, survival. I'm holding it up here. Greed, survival, redemption. Um, and I understand that's a pretty interesting story because you would write pages and send the pages out to your wife. That's um, right. And um, so, you know, talk a little bit about that. You you wake up on the table. You realize your second chance, and you get back sent back to prison. You know, you get sent back to a pretty, another pretty rough prison because of the time that you have left, you're not, you know, yeah. eligible to get into a, 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 a lower security. Um, and you make the decision to start giving back, to start helping some of the other inmates to start teaching. And then 
When did you decide to write the book? Or were you just writing letters to your wife about how you're feeling and it kind of turned into this process? You know what? That's did kind you of make, did, did you make up your mind that you're writing the book or did it just kind of evolve through through the process? You know, kind of walk us through because, you know, uh, another guy, I think you're familiar with Ethan, he just got his book contract. Um, and, you know, it's it's a it's an amazing experience to be able to share um, those kind of things and to write all that down and, and to handwrite all that and send it out page by page or, or you know a few pages at a time is how long did that take? I mean, and, and just you know give us well, give it, us a little bit of insight on that. I, I, mean, I, I will. Had to take- I will. I will. Uh, it all started when I was in the prison infirmary when I when St. Anthony's released me. I spent uh, almost four months in the prison infirmary at DRDC. Uh, if you call it an infirmary, I mean, it was a very filthy place. And yep. the care there is suspect to say, the, uh, <laughs> to give you the benefit of the doubt, it was suspect. But well, anyway. Yeah. At least you're in Denver, though, though. So if it's something does happen, yes. you're close to a real hospital. Yeah, yeah. And my family could come to see me there. But anyway, I started writing letters to my friends and family, apologizing for my actions. And it just came to me, you know, I can't just sit here. I got to let people know what happened to me. I got to let people know that I'm very sorry for what I did. And I got to let people know uh, or ask them to give me a second chance if they would ever see me again. And I wrote about 100 letters and it was very cathartic. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write these. Nobody's going to write me back, but it's cathartic for me. I got about 50 of those 100 letters a response. And the majority of them were very positive. And that gave me the confidence to know that if I indeed follow through on my words, I'm going to turn my life around. That if, if and when I get out, I will have some people to come home to. And... I'd be talking on the phone, you know, you have, even though I was in the infirmary, I was locked in my uh, hospital room, if you will, 23 hours a day. You had one hour to get out in the day room, uh, cook your food that you might get on canteen and use the phone. Well, I would get on the phone and I would talk, use that whole hour to talk to my wife and my two boys. And they said, Dad, you're writing these letters. Why don't you keep a journal? Why don't you write a journal and at least you'll have, it'll, it'll occupy your time. It'll be more cathartic for you. So I started writing a journal and I sent it to my kids and they read it. They go, dad, you are a great writer. Let, let's work on a book. And I said, okay. So I started all that book when I was in the infirmary, I didn't finish writing it until I was at Delta, which is a camp, as you know, on the Western Slope near Grand Junction. That was four and a half years into my sentence. That's when I finished it. Now, the reason it took me so long, well, number one, you know, I had to come up with all these thoughts. But number two, uh, like you said, I, I had not a legal yellow pad, but I had white paper And I had a little stick pen, you know, in prison, you can't, as you know, have pens because if I I could turn into a weapon, right? So um, I had a little stick pen I could barely hold on to. And I'd write these pages front and back. 
And I decided to send four pages at a time addressed to my wife, put them in a regular envelope with a stamp. I was afraid that if I wrote too many pages and put them in a manila envelope, that potentially I, the cops would open it up, see what I was doing and throw it away. So it was a incredibly difficult process, but I got it done. Yeah, no, no worries. So to give everybody a visual on that, um, the little stick pin that Mark's talking about is basically the inside, the ink, ink cartridge of a big, you know, regular big pin. <laughs> yeah, so remember trying to figure out how to write with those things. I was like, oh, you have to write wrap paper around them and all kinds oh, of things. It, that's what I did. Good. That's what I yep. did. And yeah. so the project was about four and a half years. I would send it home. My wife would give it to my kids. They would put it on the computer. So when I did get home, we had this huge manuscript of about seven, 800 pages. And so uh, I have a, a dear friend of mine who said, Mark, I will help you get this book published because, you know, I, I was left with no money when I got in trouble because I went into receivership. All my assets were sold. I, we, we had the house that we lived in in Denver. That was our only asset. And I had no money. Right. So my friend said, I'll put some money up. Well, we found a publisher in Colorado. She edited it and published it. And uh, that's how I got the book. But it all started writing letters to friends, turning it into a journal. And then it turned into a book. Right. Yeah, so that's, that's amazing. So, you know, these times that we've been going through have been kind of crazy, right? With the COVID and then now with oh, yeah. um, with the marches and, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, uh, racial equality, you know, the defunding of the police, all this kind of calling out, you know, um, which is amazing to see. And it's, it's been, you know, interesting times, especially coming out of, of prison and kind of going back into a lockdown with COVID. And, and my friends were like, oh, this sucks. I was like, oh, no, this is nothing. No, no, <laughs> You're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, everyone's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great, man. I'd be yeah. like, this is, you know, my, uh, my, my celly, so to speak, is way better. And, and my, my yeah. surroundings are... You know, I can, I can come and go as I want and do things still, even though we're in so supposed lockdown. So yeah, I think it was I totally pretty easy. You, uh, pretty you know, easy, but. I did a podcast, and you know this. There's a fellow that lives in outside of London who spent many years in a Phoenix prison. He was in the stock business, but he got uh, busted first uh, selling drugs. And um, uh, he went ahead and interviewed me and the original topic was going to be how do ex-cons cope with the COVID-19 lockdown? Well, it's simple, <laughs> but it turned into the, the, the actual podcast was titled what happens when you don't wear shower shoes in the shower. And it got about, <laughs> it got about 3 million hits, which was really good. Uh, but that's amazing. Yeah. So it started out though is, how do you, how does an exit mate cope with this lockdown? And like you said, this is nothing. I mean, uh, obviously yeah. it's a little frustrating that I, I don't have my sports. I can't go 
Yeah, you know, there's a, a lot of things I like that are not available. But my gosh, compared to what we lived through, this is a picnic. Yeah. Compared to that 23 and 1 in, in the oh, infirmary. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, a picnic. Now and, I go and, to the and, doctor uh, for a certain thing. I'm there for 30 minutes and I get to go home. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're, you're not, you're, your toilet and sink isn't the same contraption. No, and I don't have, uh, I don't have 10, uh, 10 people. <laughs> watching me go to the bathroom so it's really good right right so i I was with that comment i was talking to a little bit that i was going to kind of break into something that's um probably a little timely right now with with the racial inequality and and the racial just subject you know in prison um there's a big segregation right i mean um there's the the gangs for one then there's the races and you know all those things and you know for me it was a big eye-opener you know on, on who you sit with you can be classified who you talk to while you're walking around the yard you know all these things that i had had to learn I'm, as, as well as you i know oh, yes. um yeah um you know What's your thoughts around some of this on what's happening now, you know, with living that life on how segregated it still is and, and how much racism there still is on both sides to how now that we're, you know, it seems like on the outside here, the, the walls are starting to break around that and that people are, are fed up with it. You know, do you think there's any of that going on on the inside that there's, becoming embracing or, or not? I mean, you know I, what? I, I tend to doubt it, Buck. You know, I haven't been back in five years. And, you know, I have gone back to speak, you know, when their COVID wasn't there. But uh, based on what I saw and based on the groups of people that are in prison, the white supremacists, uh, like you say, the gangs, uh, I really don't think that that culture is going to change. But I do agree with you that this last thing with George Floyd, um, I think that's a game changer. I think that I think people are really becoming aware in the free world that this has got to stop. This has got to change. And I told my wife, I said, God forbid this happens again, you know, with a white cop killing a black person or uh, I think we're going to have riots that are going to go on a lot worse than these were. And I, um, right. So, but I think on the inside, I just don't think, and I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I just, there's so much it's racial tension, tension in prison. I don't yeah. know how to break that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, the tension, the tension's there with everybody, um, especially when you're in some of the bigger houses, like one of us and Sterling. I oh mean, my and, gosh. I mean, the you know if you're not watching your back um or having somebody watch your back or that you've kind of gotten yourself into a status that to be left alone uh even though you're not not associated um it's it's hard you know i mean i i i went through a couple incidences that i didn't realize what i was getting myself into um until after it kind of happened and then it was like man that could have been really bad (laughs) um but yeah and a lot of it is 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 the race side of things and i i'm not you know i didn't pay attention to that in the beginning i was just like wow okay it's a real thing and i agree with you inside there it's just so 
it's almost bread, right? I mean, that it's just like, it's, you know, such the mentality and it's unfortunate. I I hope that there's something happening inside too that it breaks, but I don't know. And, you know, given the reform they're talking about on on police, what, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I have said forever that, you know, police being militarized and, the fact that they are constantly they're not they're, they're not a they're not a public servant anymore they they're there to either serve you a ticket or or put you in jail and let the you know system figure it out they don't have any foresight they're almost robotic and militarized that way and anytime that you put public servants into quotas that they have to you know give to the civilians to meet their, you know, to get to the next level, I think is a recipe for disaster to begin with. And then you give the power trippers, you know, that, you know, you know, one little incident that happens such as, as the George Floyd incident. And these guys just completely overreact. I mean, and it's, yes. you know, it's not, they are not the, the lone Rangers that is, you know, happening in every city, across the the nation and and it's not just white on black it's white on white black on white it's it's all of it it just happens to be that you know that probably gets the most attention but they i believe that you know this is a great thing on on the reformation of you know calling to rethink the police again potentially of of downsizing the militaryized force that they've become i agree with you and you know what you're seeing is you know you're reading or seeing that if uh if a cop, um, like I, I think it was in Denver and it was during the riots and evidently uh, a cop was overheard saying, let's start a riot. Well, they fired that guy. They fired that cop the next day. Uh, right. I, I thought I saw something today on my phone that some fire chief said that he was going to use his hose and spray people as they were congregating to to peacefully march and he was fired the same day so i think at least for now we're going to investigate that stuff and you know i've been watching interviews on tv and and last night there was a little debate uh between uh oh gosh our old governor hickenlooper and I can't remember the guy that's running against him for the Senate, Romanoff or something like that. And mm-hmm. the moderator asked each of them, went back to some of the uh, cases where cops killed people in Denver, like, um, oh, my gosh, um, someone in the Denver County Jail, a, a black man. I can't remember yeah, his name. Was- I, I can't remember his name either, but that yeah. was happening right about the time I went in. Yeah. So they would ask the question, do you think so-and-so was murdered by the police? And Hickenlooper gave some kind of a political answer, but this Romanoff or whatever said, yes, he was murdered. And um, I don't know whether uh, you can go back and revisit these cases on some of these people and arrest the cops and try them. I don't know whether that's all passed. I don't know if there's a statute of limitations. I don't know how it works, but we're we're re-examining the people that have been killed by the police. I know in Denver, and I'm sure all over the country, saying, hey, if this guy was murdered, is there any kind of 
way we can get back at these police who did the murdering. So I think there right. is a there's a real uh, momentum changing thing going on, but I question as time moves on, will this fade away? I, I kind of don't right. think it will, but but I will say again, God forbid there's another uh, person murdered by the cops, even if it's a white person. I just right. think there could be riots that I, I don't think we as a society are going to tolerate this anymore. This is your host, Buck Adams. If you are interested in being a guest on the show, please contact us through artforredemption.com. Art for Redemption is an e-commerce platform for incarcerated artists. We are currently collecting art from artists nationwide to be showcased in the first ever coffee table book for this genre. Check us out at artforredemption.com.